Hi there, I'm Dan, and welcome, or welcome back, maybe, to the Shaw Vineyard Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take just a moment to subscribe in iTunes or in your podcast app of choice. That way, you can get every message from our church straight away on whatever device best suits you. You know, it's our hope that the message that you're about to hear in this episode would encourage you to take your best next step in your faith journey. So let's get straight into it. And um, well, yeah, he's not he's not the wife. I don't know. Look, don't I don't need that. Either. What, yeah, mm. Anyway, um, Fran is incredibly knowledgeable in areas of the spirit and of I guess some people might call it like areas that haven't been well tread by the church in the past. And so she's got a whole wealth of knowledge around areas that are quite fresh for most people. They haven't heard in the church for the last 15 years, the same thing over and over again. Um, and Fran's got, brings a new perspective, but one that's actually really um, insightful and uh, knowledgeable and all that good stuff. So she, she's going to prove that now. And I'm going to go sit down <laughs> before I get told off. Amen. Amen. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, that was a lovely introduction. And hopefully I can live up to at least a portion of it. So I'm Fran. It's lovely to see you all this evening. It's Advent and uh, in case you haven't noticed we've been lighting candles and that sort of stuff and so it's an opportunity to kind of consciously welcome you into a particular and special season of the church and of our faith. So Advent is the four weeks and especially the Sundays leading up to Christmas. It's a time of preparation Uh, a time of special awareness. Uh, We travel, if you like, in our own way with the people of the story towards the moment of recognition of God as one of us. And our focus this year is listening to the voices of those present at this cosmic turning point, the incarnation of God. And some of the voices we'll know pretty well. Some of them, I think probably largely in the church, we've avoided a little bit. Some of the voices are faint, and they take more effort to listen to. There are angels, and Vic spoke about the angelic voices this morning, and you might like to listen into that on the podcast because it was very good. We also have the voices of kings, of seers, of priests, of peasants, of carpenters, shepherds, men, and significantly, women and children. And they're all here for a reason, We won't be able to hear from all of these voices in our series, but we're certainly going to do our best to turn the volume up on a few special ones as we track towards Christmas, which in our faith is also known as the Feast of the Nativity or the birth celebration. Good opportunity for eating great cake and drinking too much and having to have a sleep in the afternoon, like most feasts should provide that opportunity for, don't you reckon? So the other thing that we're doing in Advent this year is that we're not just... uh, listening to these voices, but we're going to see the event in history through the eyes of artists from around the world. So there'll be way too many slides because I've tried to jam as much art in there as I possibly could. My feeling is that actually the picture might speak to you more than anything I say. So if that's you, you just roll with that. We'll have artists from Africa, India, Asia, and Aotearoa celebrating Jesus as he is, belonging to every human family and race. 
and we're hoping that there'll be some fresh insights, some moments of healing or restoration somewhere that will be moved to acts of compassionate justice, and is there any other kind of justice? I don't think so. And that in the bright and dark parts of these stories that we would recognize ourselves and offer ourselves body and soul to God, as indeed Mary did. So most of us will be familiar with something of the nativity or birth story of Jesus. It's found in two of the four Gospels. So we find them in Luke and we find them in Matthew. Something new for me was that the birth narrative was pretty much the last part of the Jesus story to be added and included into the Gospels. So who knew? So I'm just going to read uh, the account from Luke's Gospel. This is the New Living Translation. So kind of switch your mind off, if you like, and turn your heart on and just see what you hear as I read it. You don't have to try and analyze it. Here's the story. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee whose name was Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, and the virgin's name was Mary. And in going into her, he said, Hail, favored one. The Lord is with you. And she was greatly distressed at his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And see, you will conceive in your womb and will bear a son, and you shall declare his name to be Jesus. This man will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob throughout the ages. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How shall this be, as I have intimacy with no man? And in reply, the angel told her, A holy spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Hence, the offspring will be called Holy, a son of God. And look at your kinswoman, Elizabeth. She also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who had been called barren. Because nothing of all the things I have said is impossible with God. And Mary said, See, the slave of the Lord. May it happen to me as you have said. Actually, that's not the New Living Translation. That's a translation from the Greek by David Bentley Hart. I like to read it in a way that's a little less familiar, something that isn't sort of Bible wallpaper. <laughs> so, the Gospels aren't biographies, which I find annoying, because I would like a lot more backstory than these little thumbnail sketches that the writers give us. They are relentless and determined about not giving us too much information that is irrelevant. So all they're giving us are the pivotal moments in the conception, birth, and childhood of Jesus. Weirdly, Luke and Matthew focus on entirely different groups of people and events. However, their accounts align when you look at the structure rather than the details that we get a bit hung up about that were obviously not important at all to the earliest listeners or to the writers. So the structure of the narratives goes like this. The Annunciation. 
the angel visits Mary to, uh, to say that God has chosen her. But just because she's chosen doesn't mean it's a done deal. And we'll look a bit more at that today. And that is a Latoka people icon of the Annunciation, Native American. The next structure of the narrative is the birth. So both Matthew and Luke tell us that the child is born. And this is Frank Wesley, an artist from India. And then the next part, oh, sorry, that's a bit tiny. It's the revelation of the birth. So both Matthew and Luke tell us to whom the birth is revealed. And this is important because they are different groups of outsider people. One are the shepherds who are low-grade people in first century Palestine. And the other group are Persian wise men. And they're called the Magi, sometimes called the Three Kings, but they're astrologers, also outsiders, foreigners. So this is who God chooses to reveal the birth to. And both Matthew and Luke tell us what those groups of people do, which is they then show up, as we can see in this um, artwork, they show up to worship the infant king. As for Mariam, or Mary as we know her, she's a peasant. She has no religious rank, unlike her cousin Elizabeth. She has no social status, no obvious tribal lineage, otherwise it would have been included. There is nothing to which we can attach special worth or qualification for God having chosen her. The fulfillment of the promises of God, then, hinge on the decision of a young peasant girl in a patriarchal system of an oppressed society in occupied territory. In the moment when she is visited by the angel, there are no male relatives present. No man had input on her decision. No man was required to validate what she decided. South American theologian Anna Maria Bidegain says of Mary's decision, this is not a passive self-denying yes, but a free act of self-bestowal for the purpose of co-creating a new world. It was a free and responsible act. This is another feminist theologian. She says, this decision was hers to make and God made sure she was free to do so. It is her agreement, her decision. And in this sense, Mary is a free woman, full of self-dignity and fulfilled. She is a virgin. This isn't a sexual reference, but an autonomous state of being prior to becoming a wife and mother, a recognized state of being in Mary's early Mediterranean world. And yes, she was a virgin in the other sense too, but this is an important distinction for us tonight. So the received image of Mary we might have is that of a passive, acquiescent young girl. But when the angel visits, she asserts herself like a prophet, saying, See, the slave of the Lord. The same language is used by Isaiah, exactly the same phrasing, actually. Um, Here I am, send me. So they phrase it slightly differently with Mary, but it's exactly the same intent. She's speaking like a prophet in this moment. And because of that freedom, all freedom to us comes through her. So the Bible is full 
of chock full, it's chock full of irony and paradox. So some of those paradoxes might be weakness over strength or foolishness over wisdom. The last shall be first. Um, the lowly instead of the powerful. The poor instead of the rich. The sinner instead of the righteous. And then we come to the woman instead of the man. Mary is entirely part of God's counterintuitive way of disarming us in order to heal us. It is her very lowliness, her obscurity, her complete lack of any particular status or claim to fame that makes her God's choice. Of course it is, because this is how God always does it. He bypasses the haves and he privileges the poor and the obscure. So paradox, irony, call it what you will, a girl is the key to the healing of the cosmos. And her voice is the one we're listening to today. So the angel has told her as a proof that her old, childless cousin Elizabeth is also expecting. Two women, cousins, both pregnant, both having received a message from God delivered by the same angel, Gabriel, relating to their babies and the future of those children. If I was Mary, I know where I'd be heading, up to the hill country to find and stay with the only other person on the planet who could verify, believe, understand, and support me. So Mary does exactly that, and she heads straight for Judea to stay with Elizabeth. In Elizabeth's house, God has silenced the only man, Zechariah, the priest, and Elizabeth's husband, who had not believed what the angel had told him. So I think it's incredibly interesting and wonderful that these two women, both expecting children in God-ordained mysterious circumstances, one of them uh, beyond childbearing and one of them not able to have children yet because she hasn't slept with a man in order to conceive a child, but here they are both uh, in this amazing space. And God's placed them in a safe place. They're free to talk, reflect, complain about their heartburn and their swollen feet, get up in the night to pee, to savour, fret, pray and ponder together, freed from the voice of the established male order. God is changing things. All of this wonder and these miracles, this fulfilment of God's promises takes place in domestic space this most radical of God's moves, entering humanity himself as a vulnerable baby, is done among women at home. And I know that to some it sounds weird or dangerous to say that Mary is the mother of God. Well, she is. Theologically, that is our position. God did not start with Mary, of course, that would be stupid. But Mary, as mother of God, is utterly how we see her and is theologically sound. Mary donated 100% of her DNA to God to allow God to be born as fully human and fully God. So, I don't know if you've thought about this particularly, but God was breastfed. God had to be burped by Mary and Joseph and patient aunties and uncles. God sometimes had a stinky and sore bum and dribbled and cried when he was teething. God was as adorable as Felicity, and just as tiring for Mary and Joseph. The difference is 
that when Jared or Steph kiss Felicity, she's an image bearer of God, just as they are themselves. When Mary kissed Jesus' fat little cheek, she literally kissed the face of God. This is part of what we call mystery in our faith. It beggars belief. We're like, what? But at another level, it's just so deeply consoling and comforting. Yes, God is truly with us. He's the only God who demonstrated his love by suffering with us and entering our mess to live it with us in flesh and blood. So in Advent, we can celebrate the healing of the image of God in women. And we can also celebrate that men are liberated from patriarchy. Men are not the chosen ones to partner with God in salvation. Women are an old one and a young one. Elizabeth and Mary are known as the mothers of redemption, and they make profound theological and countercultural prophetic statements and actions. God, through them, places, as Rupert beautifully put it a few weeks ago, relationship over rules. God turns everything upside down through these women. And God's faithfulness to the promise not to leave us in our self-created darkness is carried out in the marvelous act of incarnation, becoming flesh. Julian of Norwich, pretty much my favorite spiritual kuia um, from the 14th century, put it like this. When God was knitted to our body in the virgin's womb, think about that. God was knitted to us. We often think, oh yes, God knit me together in my womb. Here's something else. God was knitted to us in the virgin's womb. God took our sensuality and wound it to our substance. Thus our lady, Mary, is our mother in whom we are all enclosed. So she, in a way, gave birth to all of us. And in Christ, here we go, we are born of her. And Jesus, here she pushes the boat out, is our true mother, in whom we are endlessly carried and out of whom we will never come. Humanity is carried in the womb of Christ and can't fall out. So I hope that blew your mind. That might give you something to think about for the next 10 years. So this patriarchy-free space that God gave Mary is a radical offer of co-creation, which is utterly dependent on her consent. And this consent is an ongoing pattern of God's engagement with all of us. Mary's consent to God's plan is seen by feminist scholars, as we've seen, as a freely given consent by an independent woman sure of her dignity in her relationship with God. How's your dignity in your relationship with God, and are you sure of it? The description of the role of the Holy Spirit in the announcement of Gabriel is reminiscent of the priestly account of creation in the first chapter of Genesis. So it's not much of a leap then to conclude that Luke's theological purpose is to show us that a new act of creation has taken place. Mary's body is the medium of God's new creation. God and Mary, therefore, are co-creators. It's a new genesis, literally a new beginning for the human story. 
And this image is how Cistercian nun and artist Sister Grace Remington expresses this profound truth. So there you have Eve. And there you have Mary. And this is how the story plays out. A whole new beginning takes place in Mary's body. This yes of Mary is matched by an equally important no. Mary's hymn, the Magnificat, is a revolutionary no to oppression. Mary and God together say a firm no to any complacent tolerance of injustice. God has acted and will act to bring a new reign of justice, equality and peace. And the Magnificat hymn, prayed so often in church tradition but not in ours, contains prophetic words of denouncement and hope that we must keep championing. So if you don't know it, here it is. I won't sing it because it doesn't have any known tune from the first century and the contemporary ones. You wouldn't want to hear me sing them. Here are the words. My heart praises the Lord. My soul is glad because of God my Saviour, for he has remembered me, his lowly servant. From now on, all people will call me happy or in a state of blessedness because of the great things the mighty God has done for me. His name is holy. From one generation to another, he shows mercy to those who honour him. He has stretched out his mighty arm and scattered the proud with all their plans. He has brought down mighty kings from their thrones and lifted up the lonely, lowly, because he did it in her, right? He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He's kept the promises he made to our ancestors and has come to the help of his servant Israel. He has remembered to show mercy to Abraham and to all his descendants forever. So this is the last and most triumphant of what are known as the dangerous songs of salvation sung by Mary's forebears. Miriam, the sister of Moses, Deborah, one of the judges of the Old Testament, Hannah, the mother of Samuel the prophetess, and Judith, who is from the apocryphal books that sit between the Old Testament and the New Testament, which the Protestant churches don't include, but the rest of the church in the world does. So Judith sings a dangerous song of salvation all of her own. So the words that stream from Mary's heart to her lips are the longest speech of any woman in the New Testament. And as that woman is the mother of God, we should pay attention. She has important things to say. And her song directly echoes and builds on those prophetic songs. Amongst some of the things she says, you might have noticed that she says God has remembered or noticed her, his lowly servant. So what is lowly? Again, our received image is that of the downcast eyes and passivity. That's not lowliness. Lowliness is the misery, pain, persecution, oppression, and exclusion experienced by the poor. That's what is meant by a lowly condition. And this is Mary saying how it is for her and telling God that. 
a young woman in first century Palestine. This is her experience of life. And God has noticed. And God comes to her, a nobody, and chooses her. She also then, in response, offers herself to God as a shifka, a bondmaid, a slave. It's pretty hard for us to hear that. But unless we understand the paradox that we're only truly free when willingly bonded to God, we'll find ourselves trapped in the fake freedom of independence, self-centered and ego-driven living. She chooses to be bonded to God in order to find ultimate freedom. Then her song turns to what fulfillment of God's covenant promises looks like, which is mercy, faithfulness, justice. Men and women alike, we need Mary. And our Protestant tradition has in its own patriarchy silenced Mary and hidden her from our view for fear of idolatry. And we're the poorer for it to be honest. The life that she exemplifies for us, her utter abandonment of herself into God's hands is um, unparalleled. She is indeed Saint Mary. Saint just means holy. She is Holy Mary. All of the um, the spiritual giants of the Bible, if you like, are all saint, someone or other. Even Adam and Eve are Saint Adam and Saint Eve, Holy Adam, Holy Eve. They are our spiritual kuya and komatua. They're not characters in a Bible story. They're not characters. They're our spiritual ancestors. Greek Christians have a name for Mary. It's a deeply theological name. It's Theotokos. And Maori theologians have shown it like this. It means God-bearer. Mary conceived, bore, and gave birth to Jesus. This is an araki tapairu. So this is a representation of Mary. She has been given a full-face moko uh, to show her high chiefly standing. It was intuited by Maori Christians early on. And that she is a particular kind of tapu. No man was allowed to touch an araki tapairu. And here is Mary depicted in that very important role. And it was, yeah, intuited by Maori Christians very, very early on. But it won't surprise you at all to find that this image was rejected by the churches. So, the God-bearer. Mary conceived and bore, gave birth to Jesus, the incarnation of God, and in doing so gave life to all of us. We don't have to be mothers or even women to have a God-bearing call, and we're already image bearers of God, called to use our gifts in the unfolding story of grace. You know, Mary sings a dangerous song of God's faithfulness. Can you imagine how that song would have gone down to Roman hearers? I don't think they would have been very excited about the, or Herod, as we know, was not excited about the idea of being overthrown by some jumped up Jewish baby. So her power then lies utterly in her yes. She has no 
uh, means, no wealth, no influence. All she has is a yes or a no that she can give to God willingly. That's where our power lies as well. So as we come to a close tonight, let's stand together and we'll just spend a few minutes just with God. Not that we have not been with God, but you know. So I just invite you to just be a little bit still and maybe to close your eyes. Nothing dramatic is going to happen from the front. There's really no point looking at me right now. And I guess I'm inviting you to notice if there's something in you. Some small, vulnerable hope. Something God-breathed or God-given. And if that's you, as a community, just standing in our own places, we incline our hearts towards you. And we add our yes to your yes. That this small vulnerable thing that you've been entrusted with by God will grow and be born into something full of life that is good for you and us and the world and you'll know what that is if that's you I'm conscious too that some of you may need to know that God has remembered you in your lowly condition, in your pain, in your misery, in your sense of exclusion, whatever it is that means that you're in a low, lowly place right now. We're just going to rest here for a moment with you. And we're saying... God has remembered you. You're here. And this message was for you. God hears you and sees you and you are seen by us. And we bless you and we're glad you're here. And if we can help you with your pain or your misery or your exclusion, or whatever your condition is, please tell us so that we can truly share your life. The last thing that I'd like to do just as we finish is to give you a moment to listen to God for yourself. Often we listen for God to speak in a, in a man's voice. So much of the Bible language is he, him. But maybe if you haven't heard God for a long time, it could be that God is saying things to you in a mother's voice or a sister's. Possibly like Elizabeth, there's an older woman voice there that God might use to speak to you someone who can share your experience because that's what Emmanuel is, God with. So let's just rest and pause here just a moment.
What would God say to you in a feminine voice? What would God's demeanor be towards you? What action would God do? And just receive it, trust it. And so we come to the end of this Advent service. Loving God, we thank you for the great faithfulness of Saint Mary, our Kuya, her yes, her courage. We invite as you, loving God, as we go through this week to continue to speak to us and accompany us. Travel with us to the stable on Christmas Eve. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. And if you're in the Forest Hill or the Bays area of Auckland's North Shore, we would so love to have you at our next service this Sunday. You can get details on service times and more info on our kids and student environments by visiting svc.org.nz. That's svc.org.nz. Hope you have a great day and we'll see you next time here on the podcast.